invite your attention to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Now, I wondered as I read this chapter, you know, how can I devise three points, make it easy for the folks this morning under the sound of my voice? And I couldn't come up with three. I'm very sorry to say, simple three. So I ended up with 12. <laughs> I broke it up in four ways, three apiece. This morning we can see three enemies, three attacks, three numbers, and three key words to help you this morning. So I bear, uh, I'm asking a little bit of your patience this morning. Revelation is a tremendous book, and yet it's a book that is least read among us. I don't know why, maybe it's scary, maybe it's unknown, mysterious to us. And quite frankly, I agree with every one of those points. But it's been my joy to observe Revelation through the years, to read it, to try to seek to understand it, and uh, to know its blessings. In the very first chapter, John tells us all, the churches, to read. Blessed is he that readeth the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are you, and understand it. And so, as we go to the Lord, we seek His wisdom in understanding this great book. Now, it is a picture book, isn't it? It's a picture book, a lot of symbolism. And one of the general rules that I maintain in my study of the Bible is that in symbolism, almost always it leads to a true reality, a literal reality. A symbol is never understood in the reality of a symbol. Now, a symbol is a picture, and it points to something. It draws a beautiful picture. Now, the other thing is that's important to note about the book of Revelation is you're seeing the events played out in the course of the church age through the eyes of the Lord. Now, you can go to portions of the epistles, for instance, like 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, And you can see the events that shape especially the coming of the Lord through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. Or you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and see the events of the end times through the eyes of the Apostle Peter. Uh, And having made note of that fact, uh, one of the particular ways in which many today look at the book of Revelation is purely as having already taken pass as something in the past. But I just noted to you, both Peter and Paul reference something that is coming, something that must take place that's future, at least from their standpoint. And of course, 70 AD was. But if you look at those texts, there's much more implied in terms of the final, ultimate finality to this world. So always remember that. Uh, the, uh, The view that people refer to as Revelation having already taken place completely or is held by those who are called the preterist, which is the Latin word for the past. I didn't quite pronounce it the way the Latin uh, does, but uh, it's certainly something to consider. Well, we look at the book of Revelation in addition to that, not only through the eyes of God, if you will, during these events, but we also recognize that the book of Revelation is written in such a way that it's not chronological, one one event after another. And many people do that. Um, Take, for instance, the second and third chapter that deals with the seven churches of Asia. And they take that as meaning a particular period of time until ultimately the end, the Laodicean church, the last church, that John addresses or that the Lord addresses would symbolically reference the last age, the church in the last age, a sleepy church. Church is neither hot nor cold. Well, I take the particular view that the seven churches of Asia represent the entirety of the church age from beginning to end. And no matter where you are along that particular period of time, you could be a church of Thyatira. You could be a church of Sardis which was dead. They were lifeless, spiritually speaking. Not dead in trespasses and sins, but dead in in terms of fervency and vigor for the cause of Christ. And so, 
and of Ephesus, the church that was first named in Asia by John. He said they lost, they left their first love. Well, how many Christians today have left their first love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we can see the characteristics of those seven churches of Asia, by which not all the churches in Asia are listed, by the way. Colossians, a church of Asia, was not part of the seven churches listed in the second and third chapters of Revelation. So we see the characteristics applied to every church throughout all the church age. And that's why they're good to read and, and, and come to some practical conclusion for each one of us. And so um, other key interest, interesting points is not only are they not chronological, but they have an overlapping effect. So when you read about the great earthquake, for instance, in a latter portion of the book of Revelation, and then you ask yourself, well, why do I read about the same great earthquake in the sixth chapter, the opening up of the sixth seal? And then between those two, there's more. So there's the same event, but it's presented uh, through the eyes of God for us to read in, in various ways or manners, different characteristics, but all portraying the same great catastrophic event. Um, I, I don't know if you remember the earthquake that we experienced several years ago in this particular area. I was at a swimming pool doing some work. I wasn't in the water. I was doing some work while the lights in the swimming pool were not working. And while I was there, I thought I heard a Mack truck come down a small residential side street. I couldn't believe it. Everything shook. And then the water started to ripple. It was an earthquake. And I felt a little discomforted. And that was just a teeny little tremor. One can only imagine what a great earthquake where the whole foundations of this earth shake. So much so that the kings of the earth cry to the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb that sits upon the throne. Wow, this book is very emblematic and very symbolic of the wrath of God. And so we look at this particular book and its chapters, I believe, through seven cycles. I've mentioned before how it's like rings, like the Olympic rings, the games, and how there's a series of them. But if you could see seven rings, if you will, and they all blend in one, but each ring portrays a different event, excuse me, the same event in a different manner. That's the way to read it. Now, the other important point is this. That we're not, when we read the book of Revelation, we're not basing our final definition of a particular term or passage on what we think. You know, and this gave rise to people like Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth several years ago that wrote on the book, a commentary on the book of Revelation and drew out of modern ideas like helicopters and, you know, nuclear bombs and things like that to convey what was going on in the book of Revelation. No, what you need to understand the symbolic language of the New Testament is the symbolic language of the Old. And I think that's partly some of the reason why we're not familiar with the book of Revelation is because we're not students of the Old Testament. It's kind of like dark and secret passages that we don't want to really pry into. But a lot of the images in the book of Revelation, like the moon turning into blood or the sun darkened, are mere phrases that are used over and over again, especially in the book of Isaiah. And they portray not only the catastrophic events that may take place, but also the timepieces, how they may cease or uprooting the course of the foundation of the world, totally dismantled, totally upheaval, you know, taking place, great confusion, chaos, that kind of thing. And uh, we can see that portrayed not only... Um, in terms of the judgment that God places upon Babylon, but also upon other countries like Egypt and even Jerusalem. They're back in the book of Isaiah. And then you can read ultimately in the 24th chapter of Isaiah where the whole earth is shaken with that same kind of figurative language. So we can't really just apply it to one particular nation, although we gravitate toward that. You know, we're very literal in our thinking a lot of times when, we, when in terms of sim, sim, symbolism. 
but we can see that played out as just mere language conveying something uh, much broader and can be applied not only to Jerusalem, Egypt, or Babylon, but it can be applied as the 24th chapter of Isaiah does, the whole earth. Now just as a for instance, just as like an illustration in terms of maybe understanding these terms in the book of Revelation, in the first chapter we read about seven spirits. The seven spirits. Well, a Hebrew student would automatically know immediately that seven in the Bible was a picture of finality or completeness. That's all it's saying. The seven churches of Asia, a picture of completeness. It didn't include all the churches of Asia, but it includes what we need to know. It includes everything that John received in terms of prophecy. But let's just take that one case for a moment and look back in Isaiah chapter 11. And I can't remember. Well, here, here, here it is right here. The Spirit, verse 2, chapter 11, Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord. We talked about seven spirits of the Lord in the throne of God. And here are those seven listed right here for us. Remember what I said. Use the Old Testament to understand the key words of the new. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. There's one Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. Number two, the Spirit of wisdom. Number three, the Spirit of understanding. Number four, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of fear. These are seven spirits of the Lord as portrayed for us in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Excuse me, of the book of Revelation. One of the uh, things that we did several Wednesday nights ago when Brother Steve was not here and he told me to go ahead and take the Wednesday night service was when I presented um, a series of scriptures on the reign of Christ. It was a pretty long-winded set, set of scriptures, if you remember, Sister Ray's. They were a very long, a lengthy amount of text that we went through. And by the time I got to the end of it, everybody was pretty much... Uh, ready to uh, uh, retire because we had a lengthy amount of scriptures to go through. But the point was this. Christ reigns. The emphasis of the book of Revelation, as I've heard many times, says something like this. We win. Well, I I don't like that. I, I, I agree with it. But there's something more to the book of Revelation. Christ has won. Christ is victor. That's the bottom line of the book of Revelation. And that's what we see. From the very first chapter, we see Christ risen from the dead and is set down at the right hand of all majesty. And He is reigning. Ever since He ascended into glory, He sat down and He reigns. He rules with a rod of iron. And He will rule until he makes every enemy his footstool. Don't be dismayed at the difficulty of the way. As I mentioned before, I've got several customers that occasionally I have, excuse me, I have to remind them of the very fact that God is in the heavens. And they need once in a while, occasionally, I'd say that just breaks the ice, turn the TV off because they're glued to the chaos and the confusion that surrounds the television and the major media today. You ever notice that it's just a recurring theme and it never really comes to a conclusion no matter what topic they're on? It's upheaval. It's constant confusion. You, you, you really are filled with anxiety. You know, you don't go to the television news forecast and listen to the major media and walk away at peace and rest, do you? It's, it's, it's filling your bones with anxiety and you're troubled. And if you are such a subject of the major media and you find yourself full of anxiety, well, you, the control's in your hands. You probably have a remote. And the bot, and excuse me, right on that, right on there, there's a little off button. And it's easy to click it off. But you know, we're just, we're just, uh, we're just creatures of habit, aren't we? And uh, we just sometimes are so consumed with. We need to know what's going on in the world. It's amazing how fast things occur today. Fast. Something can happen in Iraq 10 minutes ago, and you know about it. It's fast. It's instant, isn't it? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because when John started this first chapter of the book of Revelation and he was told to write the things which must shortly take place, that word shortly is used in another portion of the book of Revelation. Come quick, Lord Jesus. That word shortly is also can be translated quick. So what was about to happen in terms of the prophecy revealed to John through the revelator, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be during the course of the church age, which in the book of Revelation may be referred to as three and a half days, 1,260 days, 42 months, all these varieties of timepieces that the literalists over here are taking, the dispensationalists, if, if you will, take it literally and literally are counting these figures when they merely represent something. And that is the brevity and the shortness and the quickness of this church age, which is resembled by your own life, if you will. You're here for a while. Brothers and sisters of the past who've made their mark in the church age, whose pictures hang in our foyer, have come and have gone, but they laid their mark. What mark was it? They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Don't be overwhelmed by the world. Rest in the security blanket of the Lord Jesus Christ. By whose blood you overcome. It says by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? What do you mean the word of their testimony? It's right here in front of you. It's the Bible. It's the Holy Scriptures. It's that same book that John was told to eat. Take from that great angel whose one foot laid on the sea and whose other foot laid on the land. And he had a book in his hand. And John broke out with his pen and pencil and writing tablet. And the angel said, don't you write this down. You hold on and you seal up those seven thunders, which he did. This is Revelation 10. He certainly sealed them up. But this one thing the angel told him, you take that book, that little book, and you eat it. You devour it. And that's what we're to do with the Word of God. We're to devour the Word of God. It is to me the rejoicing of my heart. You meditate upon it. You learn it. And so John ate that book. And it was to him sweet as honey in his mouth, but bitter once it went into his tummy. It was bitter. Because the book of Revelation may be bitter. In bitterness, judgment, the wrath of the Lamb, the difficulties, the persecutions, very bitter. Yes, they are. But also, sweet to the taste. Because we know Christ reigneth forever and ever. And regardless of the upheaval of this world, and the apparent rule of darkness, and the dominion of Satan, it is sweet to know that the gospel tells us about the victorious, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's on his throne. He works his will in the army of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none saith unto him, What doest thou? You see? And so, with that little introduction of one of the greatest books in the New Testament, we invite your attention to chapter 13. And I'll say this, because we're talking about three enemies of the Lord. And somebody might say, man, this is really not fitting for children to hear. That's one of the greatest errors and faults known to man is when a parent prevents their children to read this picture book about the judgment and the wrath of God and the victorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I grew up watching Star Wars. Tyler and I watched Star Wars just the other night, you know, when Luke Skywalker was, what, 10 or, um, excuse me, 15, 19, 20 years old. I mean, there he's dealing with the powers of the dark force, right? You know, we, in other words, we, we, we watch these epic, you know, cosmic struggles, these intergalactic you know, wars going on, and yet we, we prevent ourselves and our children from reading the most graphic and pictorial uh, images of, of dragons and beasts that the Bible has to offer. It's great reading. But one of the difficulties when we read the book of Revelation is we're always trying to read it in light of the filters of modern man. You know, some, some Bible commentary that has to try to force you to define what the horns are what the stars are, uh, what the hills are, 
You know, what do the crowns represent? Well, it is true that they do mean things. They do mean things. But like I mentioned regarding the seven spirits, uh, they do mean things and they are defined. And especially best understood when the Bible defines these images of which we read about. Like the beast and like the... uh, the uh, uh, these uh, these enemies of the Lord, and so I think when we when we read these and we look at these, we realize that uh, it's nothing to be afraid of uh, because they're real. Remember what I said that this symbolism always points to a true reality. You know, it's interesting that Hollywood has never denied the existence of Satan. Have you ever heard anybody in Hollywood or in the major media? Deny the existence of Satan? He doesn't do it. Because Satan is real, genuine entity. And Satan has his uh, cohorts. And it's interesting as we talk about these enemies that there are three of them. In fact, uh, the first one here is listed in verse 1 of our text. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast. So here we have enemy number two. Now enemy number one is preceding that in the 12th chapter. And it says the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so we have this dragon. We have the first beast. And then in verse 11, and I beheld another beast. And so there's three and it's very interesting, as you read throughout the book of Revelation, there's parity. There's resemblance. You know, we have three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Well, you have parity in the enemies of the Lord who attack Him. You have the great dragon, the great red dragon, and his name is Satan. And then you have the first beast, here mentioned in verse 1. And then you have another beast, here mentioned in verse 11. Now, in the 16th chapter, I believe we have all three in the same text. And it says, And I saw three unclean spirits. Always remember that. These demons are spirits. He said, Like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And so the first beast... We have a beast that is, uh, has certain types of authority and power. A beast that rose up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his seat and great authority. And so this first beast represents great authority. Now, we can easily attach it to forces much greater in this world than we ourselves. That's what the symbolism represents. In fact, one of the key texts in the Bible to understand exactly what these beasts are or what they represent is from Daniel chapter 7 when he names them. The first one was the face of a lion. And that, of course, represented Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then we see another uh, representation of a, of a leopard. And this represented Greece. And then a bear, which represented Persia, the media Persia empire, which overtook Babylon. Those three great powers, and then one, the fourth beast in Daniel 7, which is not named, but is described, was the great empire of Rome. And all these individual beasts numbered for us clearly in Daniel 7 now are a composite of this single beast here in Revelation chapter 13. And that should bring our attention to this fact that it is a beast unparalleled to those great authorities allowed by God that existed back in the day that we mentioned. They've come and gone, haven't they? These enemies will come and they go. But this beast is forecasted here that will make war with the Lord and with his 
Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the people that were that are in heaven. And so, uh, these are. Let me see if I can find that verse. Now we could we could we could attempt based on what we understand the Bible to teach to name the crowns or the the kings, the kingdoms or the kings. But it's very interesting to note. I want to make an, uh, an example here of my own personal experience. But when you read commentaries, they really pick and choose what they may represent. Now, obviously, according to John, remember John's an old man now when he gets this prophecy. I mean, he was a very young man, you remember, when he ran to the sepulcher on the day of the resurrection. He outran Peter. He was probably a teenager. But now he's a very old man. And I take this to be he's in his 90s. And that ought to tell us one thing in terms of an application. That is, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, you can be used of God. An old man should not look with disdain upon the younger people, and the younger men should not look with, uh, with despisement upon the older ones because all along life's pathway, you can be used by God for his particular service. You can have the strength and vigor of a young man, you can have the wisdom, and the education, the understanding of an old one. But all together, we are made up of the household of faith. All together, we give glory and honor unto the Lord. <clears throat> but these, uh, these beasts have a particular aspect and they have great authority. Here's the point. Because we could name who these ten uh, kings might have been when we think about it. But the point is there's a number associated with them, ten, seven, that convey the completeness and the power, the power of them, the authority of them. So this first beast really represents government power. And isn't it interesting that throughout the history of the church that it's always been the government that seeks control over the individual. And there's, it's no different here in this text that it's the government that seeks... I'm not talking about good government, that government which is placed under and by the uh, providence of God, as Paul would allude to in Romans chapter 13. I'm talking about a government that is tyrannical and oppressive, that bears down hard on the individuals. One particular example that I have in my mind is one that existed during the days of the Covenanters in Scotland, back in the 1640s, 1650s, 1670s. And there were men of the Presbyterian Church who were warned by the King of England to come under their rule and to submit to the King Charles II because he would be head of the church. The Anglican Church was the church of recognition in England in that time. And the King would have all the Presbyterians in Scotland know that he is the head of the church. And there were many Presbyterians that succumbed to that pressure and gave up their free style preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were few exceptions, like Alan Cameron and his son Richard, who were covenanters and on the grassy knolls in the countryside would gather men, brethren together, and they would preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and asserted that they would not come and bow down to the King of England's because they bowed down to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, which reigns forever and ever. You see, they had a, an allegiance, an unbroken of unparalleled allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. But the authorities didn't like it. And so the government authorities who oppress and who subvert and overpower the individuals went out with their dragons. That's exactly what they were. Horsemen. And they rounded them up. And they killed many of them. One of which was Richard Cameron who to this day lives in the hearts of many free Presbyterians. But anyway, they killed him, overwhelmed by the power of the force, and they cut his head off in his hands. And they took his hands and his head to his father at that time, who was in prison for his support of the Cameronians. And they showed him to his father, Alan. Do you recognize these? And he said, I know them. I know them. They are my sons. But he also said, it is the Lord. Good is the will of God, he said. Surely, he said, 
goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. When John ate that little book, it was bitter in his belly because of the persecution and the hardship that those who submit to and are aligned to the Lord Jesus Christ may suffer persecution in this world. I say may. You know, we live in a brief period of time where we have been protected providentially, mysteriously so, but providentially by the um, cohorts of this beast who wants authority over you. Somebody says, well, it doesn't happen today. Well, take your blinders off and read some about some of the martyrs and what they experience in, in, in Muslim countries today. Go to the Far East and see uh, pastors meeting in the privacy and the secrecy of their house for fear of the communists taking them and putting them in jail. Yes, it does happen today, but we've been afforded certain providential blessings in this great country. And one of which is called the Bill of Rights. Because somehow, by God's grace and enabling providence, men of yesteryear, our forefathers, were blessed by God to provide a Bill of Rights. In other words, these rights provided for us as citizens of this great country that would prohibit, somebody referred to them as negative rights, because they prevented him from interfering with the rights of man, you see. Those rights are unalienable. In other words, they are presumed to be given by God to us. They were not given to us by the state, you see. But the state wants to take those God-given rights away. And of course, they were enumerated for us. But the first one, a very important first one, by the good providence of God, allowing men to worship freely without the dictates, without the coercion, without the oppression of the government to tell you and to dictate to you what is and what isn't. You can go as far as Delaware and look at the, at the, uh, in, in the sign on uh, Walsh Track Church up above, BN, Baptist Meeting House, because they had to have approval from the King of England in order to meet. Because any kind of meeting, like it was in the days of the Free Presbyterians, any kind of meeting on the hillside was considered a threat to those in power who wanted to govern and control the masses, especially those pesky Christians, those Christians who owed their allegiance not to the state, but to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. Well, this beast represented in first, uh, in first verse of chapter 1 and 2 is a beast with great authority. The kind of authority that rules and dictates and like one of the rules in the, one of the great emperors, Domitian, and back in the day when John was writing this book, who ruled unless you worship his image that was on that coin that he imprinted. That was the newspapers of the day, by the way. They didn't have printing presses. But the way the authority got their messages out were not only scrolls which were read, but in the coins in the pockets of every individual, reminding them, to worship the Caesar and bow down to him. And when they caught those Christians, they made sure they either locked them up or they recanted. And of course, the previous Caesar, if you go back one or two, I guess it was Nero. And of course, Nero burned his own city of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. That's what the government does. It wasn't that long ago when our government singled out the little sisters of the poor right down here in Catonsville, Maryland. Well, what business do they have? What are they doing? What's the government involved with the little sisters of the poor? Well, that's when that thing came out, you know, about health care. And they wanted everybody to come in line with their thinking, the government's thinking. But the little sisters of the poor believed in the sanctity of life. That believed that unborn child had a right to live. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you see, founded in that constitution, wrote down by the providential care of God that all men are created equal. All men, even the unprotected, the innocent among us, all men. And so we see that the government, when ruled by Satan, when the government, under the influence of Satan, now let me ask you a question. Is the government hostile toward Christianity and its principles today? Yes, yes, they are. 
They will uproot the Ten Commandments on their own land, will they not? If it's public land, they won't have none of it. They will exclude it. But thanks be to God, you know, every Christmas, there's a reminder that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born in Bethlehem. And no matter how they cover it up, they can do it if they want, but God rules from the throne, does He not? And so as much as the enemies continually attack and subvert, there's still a God who sits in the throne upon his throne and he's ruling, reminding, even the reminding those in authority that Christ will one day make his enemies his footstool. You see how it is? That's the message of the book of Revelation. Because in those first century saints, when they were ran out of town and sought protection from the caves in the wilderness, when families were torn asunder, when they loved not their lives unto death, when they gladly submitted to the, to the authority of Christ and their heads were cut off. What I'm trying to tell you, they found solace in the Word of God. They overcame the enemies of the Lord by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, their faith in that blood, and by the word of their testimony that they would not give allegiance to any other but the Lord Jesus Christ of heaven. That's the message of the book of Revelation. And so when you see in the book of Revelation where some of these four horns, excuse me, are uh, uh, done away with, it's confidence. The seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. There are seven kings. Five are fallen. Look at the message that the poor saint is he, you know, you take one of these poor saints in Asia. Does he have a calculator? Does he have a concordance? Is he, does he have to know what's going on in terms of who is who when mentioned in the book of Revelation? No, he sees the bigger picture. He sees that this beast that ariseth out of the sea is but for a while. He said, of the seven kings, five are fallen, and one is. Well, that's telling me something. That's telling me that Christ is ruling and the victory is being won as it's played out in the course of events. That's what that tells me. And then, of course, you can read further on in almost every cycle and how that the Lord gains the victory. And so anyway, we got three beasts. They're enemies of the Lord. And they mimic the... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Watch what else they mimic. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet as the feet of a bear, and his mouth in the mouth of a lion. Now these are a very scary beast, and there's no doubt they can be intimidating. We're but natural flesh. We got a heart that's subject to fear. We can run scared. We can run scared of our own shadow. Isn't that right? If you lose money in your bank account, you run scared. That's about how fickle you are. I got to move on because I'm going to miss my last three key words. I might have to miss quite a bit of it. But let me just get to this one point because the parody is amazing. I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And so one of the heads on this beast is wounded to death. But watch this. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. Now, I've got an idea what this is. But I don't want to unveil it right now. Maybe for another date. Because I want to move, move on. But here's the point. That beast was killed. Or literally in the original slain. The Lord Jesus Christ was slain. And he rose again. And here the beast is mimicking the resurrection of Christ, even slain. Also note that power was given to him. Always remember that. Always remember that the beast was given power by the authority of Christ himself. Always make note that these guys aren't running roughshod according to their own will and power. They are under the dominion and the principality of Christ himself. Yes, they have power. Yes, they have dominion. Yes, they create havoc and chaos in the lives of many of God's children and the church. But they're also under the will and the sovereign will of God. 
when old Richard Cameron gave up his life, that life continues in a sense because the life bore testimony to the trueness of the Word of God. Okay, let's move on. They worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so the people of the earth. Now, who are the people of the earth? Notice verse 8. They that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. They are not written in the book of life. They're not written in the book. And so it tells us the actual cause of who they are. Always remember that. There's always cause and effect, as we heard already. And so these people have been given a strong delusion that they could believe a lie. Isn't that amazing? How people, you know, lies and hypocrisies, hypocrisies and lies being fed to people, and they live on it. They live on this stuff day in and day out. They're deluded in their minds. They come under a delusion. They follow a lie. And so in this case, it's no different. They easily fall down and worship the beast. And what's interesting, the beast and the people that dwell on the earth, they're together. They're working together against the Christ, against God, and against His people. But ultimately, that allegiance that the beast forms with the people on the earth will turn. The beast will turn against the people on the earth. You see, and that tells us that the enemies of the Lord, they have no real consistency. They have no real agreement. Satan uses people for one reason, and that's to de-glorify God Almighty. It's to dishonor God Almighty. He doesn't care about you. He'll use the glamour and the enticements of this world to draw you away, only to destroy you in the end. He's not after your good, after your eternal good. He's after your destruction. Why, just look at the world around us. Satan dazzles people with drugs. Satan dazzles people with dreams of rich riches. He places it before your eyes. And the men that dwell upon the face of the earth follow after. And they give their souls to the devil. And for what purpose? That they're destroyed in the long run. The beast is against God and against his Christ. Notice what... It says here to make uh, verse five, and there was given unto him a mouth. So we have the beast, we have a following who worship him. But now notice also, like the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks commandments and they are life everlasting. Notice what the beast does. He's given a mouth, speaking great things, blasphemies. I'll tell you what, you just look and listen to the nightly news. Now listen carefully to what is being said. I walked into a hospital just last week, a hospital, a popular hospital, a big hospital, well-known hospital in Washington, D.C., and I had to go to the restroom, and on the name of the restroom was gender neutral, and I'm thinking, what? That's blasphemy. Don't you understand that? Now, we're like the frog cooked in warm water and eventually boiled to death. That's what we are, because little by little... Satan gets the advantage. Little by little, he's knocking down the footholds, the strongholds by which we have stood all these years. And all of a sudden, we've come to understand, well, that's just a natural way of saying about, you know, somebody who is neither male nor female. Well, that's the most obvious truth in the Bible. And yet Satan has people believing lies, deluded. The delusion is powerful, isn't it? It subverts the truth of God. It does so quietly. To the point where you're almost in agreement with it. Where you, the, the, the point here is this. He's speaking great things and blasphemies. Now that word blasphemy. That word blasphemy is taken from a Greek word. Which also means railings. And over there in 2 Peter chapter 2. You can read about those who ultimately be, would be delivered. The unjust over to the judgment of God. They would speak railings railing accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ. When a man subverts the truth, he's speaking railing blasphemies against the one who sits upon his throne and against the word of his mouth. And Satan speaks. And so when you're watching TV 
And when you're watching some ungodly newscaster speaking blasphemies, and you sit there like it's news number one in your life, you're giving heed to the allegiance of the beast and the false prophet, which is to rise. You're giving heed to a government authority that subverts the truth of Christ. He opened his mouth and he speaks blasphemies. They're riotous in the daytime. They don't care whether it's night or day. They're in your face, if you will. And it's becoming broadened. In other words, it's becoming more prevalent. It's manifesting itself. No longer in secrecy, but it's open. It's in the court systems, the judges, the government, authorities. You see? See how it works? This is what John faced in his day when Rome was a beast. There's no doubt about it. Rome was a beast. And they, 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 were, uh, they were under that powerful rule. But now, as I mentioned, the triune aspect of the enemy, this trifecta, if you will, this axis of evil. We have the great red dragon. We have the beast. But we also have a third beast, and he's mentioned for us. So verse 11, he beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. So one came out of the sea. One came out of the earth. And of course, to the Jews and to the Hebrew mind, the sea was a very unpleasant experience. And you're not going to find those ships over in the old Israel. They just didn't venture out. I mean, they, even the disciples, when they were out on the Sea of Galilee, they were scared to death. You know, the, the winds coming down from the northeast could create such an upheaval in such a short period of time. It could be tranquil when they went out and cast their boats onto the Sea of Galilee. And just in a minute, under those fierce winds that would come down, there, those, it would be boisterous. And we read about that in the Gospels. And so the sea was something that was very, in the mindset of the Hebrew, something to avoid. Uh, the last thing Jonah wanted to be done uh, to him was cast out into the sea. But that's how far he ran from the presence of God. But anyway, this one here is on the beast. And so no matter whether it was the great Rome, uh, whose great sovereign rule permeated the world at that time, the empire world. Here you have another beast who was on land. And the way I look at this beast on land was a beast that, well, that was more local to the seven churches of Asia and to John. I mean, we can have a beast ruling somewhere in the seat of power and he's got his cohorts scattered out among the, the people. You know what they are? They're little people. Like if when you, uh, when you read about Paul the Apostle, when he goes to Philippi, what happens? Macedonia, what happens? He's run out of town. He's beaten. He's put in prison. You see, by the little cohorts, by the little beast, if you will. But anyway, there is this one beast, and he's coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Remember the parody here? He's two horns like a lamb. Like John's trying to tell you. The angel's trying to tell John something and conveying to us. He's not the Lamb of God, but he's like the Lamb of God. He appears as the Messiah. How often have you heard a government leader or, a, or someone in, in a position of power and authority liken themselves to the Messiah? Hitler referred to himself as the Messiah to the Aryan race. Others, even our own country, referred to themselves as the Messiah because they were a mystical and miraculous type of person. They conveyed a supernatural power. But that was, that was nothing but lies. That was nothing but lies. They took after the other great red dragon. The beast takes after the great red dragon. Now, notice, what, notice what he says. He spake as a dragon. In other words, he was speaking the lies that came forth from Satan. Satan is the father of lies, the Bible says. He's the father of lies. The contrast with the Lamb of God is I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice the contrast. All right, let's move on. And he exercises all power. Now, the, the second beast has a particular slant. The first beast is governmental, all authority. He rules, he reigns. But the second beast is a religious fellow. He's going to cause people to what? Worship. Isn't that interesting? No matter how scientific the world gets, how far advanced we are, right? Religion is still the topic. They're still after religion. Isn't that amazing? 
They want to do away with that First Amendment so bad they can taste it. Because once they do, they'll be in this church. They will be dictating to you what name is written upon your forehead. What mark under which you were guided and directed. I kid you not. They want inside this building so fast. But there's something that's preventing them. Not only the providence of God and hedging about our security, but also that constitution sitting down there in the halls of, uh, of the archives, National Archives. It is a precious document, preserved and provided for by God himself. We live in a country like no other country on the face of this earth. We've been blessed. We've been blessed. Exceptional, yes. God bless America. It is exceptional. I wish all people in all the world could have a constitution like ours so that they too could share the privilege. What religion are they after? Is it just any old Asian religion? No. There's one religion they're after. They're going to allow foot baths in airports for the Muslims. But don't you think they're going to allow Bible reading? They rid the schools already, the public schools. They already rid the public schools of Bible reading. It's outlawed. It's outlawed to read the Bible in a public school. Why is that? See, one thing about the nature of the beast, and we see this throughout the book of Revelation where he is, he's yet to come, right? He was mimicking the Lord. Well, you know, you can think you have a, Victory over some little item in some little location. You know, maybe the courts gave you the victory, but they keep coming back. That, with, that one which was and is yet to come. And they keep coming after your, uh, your liberties and your freedoms. Well, let's move on. Okay, he deceives them by what? By those who dwell on, on the earth, by means of those, verse 14, miracles. And so this third beast is really denoted as someone who's religious in form. And of course, this aligns itself with Paul's vision of the end times, that there must first come a man of sin. He must first be revealed. So they were scared about the coming of the Lord. He wrote them a first epistle. He wrote them a first epistle, and all of a sudden they were selling out their houses and their wares, and they were not working no longer. And Paul goes, oh, no, wait a minute now. No, no, if, if, if a man don't work, he's not, you know... He's not worthy to eat, or don't let him eat, in other words. In other words, he confronted the, the fears of the first epistle ramifications with the second and said, wait a minute, the Lord's not coming back until first that man of sin be revealed, the Antichrist. You know what's interesting? The word Antichrist is not even in the book of Revelation. But... John tells us, and also Paul tells us, that there are not only Antichrist now, already, but that one is yet to come. The single one, the most important one that we mention here as the third beast. He's the prophet beast, if you will. He is the one that points you to the dragon to worship him. And so we have the three enemies of the Lord, all working in concert. And of course they have a bride too, don't they? We have a bride that's mentioned in the previous chapter. A beautiful bride. A woman. It's the church of God, if you will. In the Old and the New Testament. That brought forth the man-child. And she had twelve crowns on her head. And it's a beautiful picture of the twelve patriarchs of old. But anyway, he, old dragon, got a woman too. And she's the mother of harlots. She's Babylon the Great, that great city, if you will. And years ago, they would attach a certain significance to that woman that was arrayed in scarlet and red with costly jewels and apparel. And even John, when he saw the vision of this great harlot, wondered and marveled. And it's like the angel taking him and shaking him, you know, forget that. You know, don't you do that. Um... Don't you marvel at that woman. That's evil. That woman's evil. And you can read about her uh, later on in the 17th and 18th chapter. <clears throat> but uh, she's the one that, of course, the beast ultimately will turn against. 
So anyway, there's such parody, it's unbelievable in the book of Revelation. Very easy. Well, I want to close in three minutes. And I just want to give you three words in this great chapter that will help you stay strong. Very easy. Because there have been men in the course of history that I won't talk about right now who I feel were questionable in their fight against the beast. You know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual. And what we do to combat the beast and the great powers that be that undermine the truth of God, we don't fight the way they fight. We don't spin webs of deceit. We don't murder, assassinate. But there's three words in this chapter that are very important by which the Christian, then and now, are equipped to handle the beast. Number one, verse 10. Here is the patience. Here is the patience of the saints. We are to have patience. We're to be at peace. When Aaron saw the destruction of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, because they offered strange fire unto the Lord in Leviticus chapter 10, the scripture says he held his peace. He held his peace. Because he was in agreement with God in the judgment of his own children. That's something hard. You're talking about bitter? That's something very difficult. You see, the gospel brings a sword. It divides. You know, get out of this universal mindset of happiness and joy and all this stuff that is fictitious that the Satan dazzles before your eyes. The gospel's got hardness to it. And I know it's sweet when we first come into relationship with the Lord and we see Jesus high and lifted up. We have a new relationship. What a friend we have in Jesus. But ultimately we learn that He, His gospel message is truthful. Let God be true and every man a lie. A liar is what the Bible says. It may come to that point. But second, the second word is faith. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Right here in chapter 13, we are to have faith. You know why? Because faith is the strongest thing that you have that will outlast the destruction even of the flesh. And I say that because I have seen people... Listen, you men out there, I'm going to say it this way because I'm number one. Without faith, you are a weakling. You are, little things will disturb you without faith. Your health, the lack of money, the departure of friends and family, little things in terms of the big picture will destroy you. But a man with faith will be solid. A man with faith will be unmoved. A man with faith will see past the circumstances, the destruction. Old Alan Cameron, when he saw his son's parts, of the body, he had faith in God. God is good. His will is good. He has followed me with goodness and mercy all the days of my life. And then the third word is found in the last verse of this chapter. really wanted to get to this one. Well, we missed, we missed a lot. I guess we missed a lot, but here it is, the last word. He said, "...let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast." How do we have understanding? He says for us, wisdom. Faith, patience, and wisdom. By these three words, you will survive the onslaught that is coming our way. That it's our very, it is our, at our very threshold. Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is God's word. Wisdom is the knowledge of God from above. Wisdom from above, not from beneath. Wisdom, not of this world, but from the Bible. Wisdom of God. The commandments of God are right and true. The wisdom of God. Let him read the book, John says in the first chapter. Read the book. Have understanding of these things. Have your mind permeated. Have your mind instilled with the things of this book. This little book, which will bring out both bitterness and sweetness.
You know, we sung this hymn early on. Listen to the words of this hymn and I'll give way. I know I was a little bit longer than I should have been. But after all, I had, um, what, 21 points? Okay, dark and thorny is the desert through which pilgrims make their way. But beyond this veil of sorrow lie the fields of endless day. Fiends loud howling through the desert make them tremble as they go. And the fiery darts of Satan often bring their courage low. Just one more stanza. If I, here it is. There on flowery hills of pleasure in the fields of endless rest, love and joy and peace shall ever reign in triumph in your breast. Who can paint the scenes of glory where the ransomed dwell on high, where the golden harps forever sound redemption through the sky? That hymn speaks a lot of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you this morning. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.